It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday morning, the 13th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Budget 22, as you know, has been announced. Cigarettes, petrol and diesel went up in price overnight. But as we move into next year, the measures announced yesterday by Ministers Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath will, they say, pave the way forward as we look back on the dark clouds of pandemic and into the bright future of recovery. Nelson Mandela once told us, our human compassion binds us to one to the other, not in pity or patronizingly, but as human beings who have learned how to turn our common suffering into hope for the future. Now with the overwhelming majority of our citizens vaccinated, and as we move to ease most of the remaining restrictions, we can begin to hope that the worst of the crisis is firmly behind us. For those whose jobs have not yet returned, Let me again reiterate that this government stands with you. For those concerned with the rising cost of living, this budget will help you. For those worried about whether they can own a home or afford their rent, this budget will support you. And for businesses looking to the future, this budget will back you. That future for individuals, for families and for businesses is based on secure public finances. We make further progress to that goal in this budget. Now we can begin to turn to the future, a future we can face with a new sense of hope, but also acknowledging that the road ahead is uncertain. The budget that Minister Donoghue and I are presenting will help us to secure social and economic recovery. Over the past year and a half, we made the right choices at the right times. Let us now do that again. And I look forward to a time when the crisis will be in the past and a distant memory for our children. I look forward to a time when the historians will conclude that we rose to the challenge, that we learned the lessons and we emerged in a better place. I am an optimist by nature. I believe that as we move out from under the dark cloud of the pandemic, there are truly exciting times ahead for this country and for its people. Yes, there are many challenges. Yes, there are many difficulties. But a good journey to a better Ireland is within our grasp for 2022 and beyond. This budget, Budget 2022, sets the course for that journey. 
With this, I commend this budget to the House. I commend this budget to the House. Thank you very much, Minister. And indeed, we'll begin uh, with uh, those budget announcements. Yes, they were joined by Minister of uh, State, Damien English, who's a TD for me, the West. Good morning to you, Minister. Thanks indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. I think uh, it's true to say that Ministers Donoghue and McGrath were very positive in uh, their delivery yesterday about the changes that lie ahead for us. Uh, what will all of this mean, do you think, over the course of the next year? Or, in other words, in 12 months, how will we look back on yesterday's budget? How will it have changed? changed our lives. Good morning, Michael, and, and thanks for having me on. I appreciate that. Look, Michael, a couple of things there. Yes, I would agree with you uh, that the two uh, ministers yesterday gave very positive upbeat speeches. Uh, I think any budget announcement of a spend of just under £88 billion, uh, and, and, and an extra spend of 4.7, so a budget package of £4.7 billion is positive news generally when you're trying to deal with a, a, a follow-up from a pandemic. You're asking where will it be in, in a year's time because of this budget. Well, I suppose, what did we try to achieve in this budget and what is our aim here? Because, again, you can't do everything on any one budget. But number one aim is to help this country continue to deal with the fallout from the, from the COVID-19 and to drive the recovery of that, recover from the pandemic. That has to be, in, in our view, a jobs-led recovery, uh, unlike what would have, would have had to happen 10 years ago when we had to bring in austerity measures to correct the public finances and, and the damage that caused to everybody in their lives. So most people yesterday are breathing, breathing a sigh of relief that there's no austerity measures. Yes, we all want more, of course we do, but at least it's, it's positive and it's forward and it's increases as opposed to decreases. The second part of the aim of yesterday's budget is to restore our public services and our living standards. And that's why this changes to the, the, to the tax bans, the tax rates, social welfare payments, carers allowance, and so on, all those changes to help in some small way um, to, to, to put our living standards and to try to keep, keep ahead or keep in line with inflation because... During the COVID, uh, a lot of money was printed all over the world. It does drive inflation, and it'll take a time for that to settle. So there's some small increase in the cost of board there to try to deal with that. But more importantly, I think, is the investment in education, mm. investment in health, investment in jobs, investment in the community to try and re- re- restore our public services to where we would like them to be. Because a lot has happened over the last 18 months, and, mm. and this country had to borrow a lot of money just to survive. And now we need to get on with the recovery. But also, Michael, to protect the future of this country and to protect the future for our young people, we have to also repair our public finances and try to reduce the borrowing and try to bring that deficit back down. Because we do recognise that there's a national debt there of $240 billion. It's a lot of money. Mm. And we all have a duty to, to manage that as best we possibly can. Thankfully, there's some bonus there from corporation tax recently, which helps reduce... Seven billion euro, yeah. Yeah, which is, which that, is that seems to be... The, the objective there seems to be that it's being put aside to pay for uh, the MICA uh, redress. Uh, one thing, uh, one, one thing that's uh, pretty uh, certain, Minister, is that in a, a year from now, the less well-off are going to be less well-off, aren't they? OK, so two things on that. First of all, uh, the, the seven billion is not... Uh, the bonus tax is not included in expenditure. We made a commitment in line with the fiscal... Um, advisory council in the summer that we wouldn't uh, put this country into an overspending situation that wasn't prudent and wasn't viable. So although there's bonus taxes come in in the last couple of months, they're not being used to increase the spend next year. They're being used to reduce the debt. Okay, but there's four billion discretionary money in uh, the calculations uh, and that will be spent on giving full redress to the micro scheme and you held off yesterday from announcing that so that uh, you wouldn't have to say, well, uh, we gave it to Micah but we didn't give it to pensioners. Uh, But getting back to the other point, uh, there's no doubt that the less well-off will be less well-off in a year. Isn't that true? Okay, there's two things there. First of all, 
to be honest and clear with you, that four billion is set aside to deal with any more issues to do with COVID. It is not for MICA. There will be, and there has been already a commitment, I was part of that commitment, part of the work on that, to mm. deal with the MICA. That's a spend that will happen over a number of years. It will cost, absolutely. Mm, yeah. Probably okay, so maybe the money will be borrowed uh, and that would equate to the seven billion that was uh, expected uh, to be part of the yes, deficit, which it isn't. So it's all in one and the same thing. But coming back to the point uh, about the less well-off, they'll be less well-off next year, Minister, won't they? Okay, I, well, two things now, Michael. I, I don't agree with you here because, first of all, the main aim of this budget is to restore jobs. Uh, and we know, as of yesterday, there's just under 100,000 people on the pub payment who haven't got their job back. There are many others uh, on, on social welfare even before that. And our effort is that the best way to help those people be better off is to help them get back into work and get back into the job. In the meantime, the various payments have increased to try to protect their income as best we possibly can. But then there's also many people who, who are either are finished working, as in their, their pensioners now, or they can't work for some other reason as well. And their supports have been increased across the board by roughly mm. five or in most yeah. cases more on this. And that's to try to, as you said, protect them a little bit with inflation so that they won't be worse off next year. Mm. And everyone's hope is... No, what I said was the opposite, that you're not protecting them, that you're going to make sure that they'll be less well off. Uh, uh, and uh, that's because of inflation. Yeah, well, that, I mean, inflation next year looks to be in around 2%. No one can guarantee that. Well, you're, ta- you're talking about needing a tenner a week uh, for energy costs, uh, and you're talking about a five euro increase, uh, and that's before you get into other uh, inflationary matters. Yeah, so at the start, Michael, I did make it so, clear that we can't do everything in the budget that you'd like to do. No, you said that the less well-off won't be less well-off, and now you agree that they will be less well-off. Okay. What I'm trying to say to you, Michael, is, first of all, the focus here is on the recovery and getting people back into mm. that's That's the key here, and because a job-led recovery will give us the finances we need to run the country and to help those... But do you accept that the less well-off will be less well-off? Well, I mean, I suppose it is an attempt to prevent that. Nobody can predict exactly what will happen with inflation. <laughs> energy costs are extremely high, Michael, and we're hoping that, the, that those energy costs will come back under control midway through next year. Uh, will someone earning €25,000 a year be less well-off? Yeah, but, my, Michael, I'm trying to... On the, but you're trying to, to ignore the question. You're trying to fudge. No, I'm not, Michael, but none of us, neither you nor me, can, can guarantee that. What we're trying to do here at this budget is to, as best we can, soften that blow. If inflation goes, goes too high, yes, people will be under pressure next year. But we're trying to deal with that and prevent that by putting in place support uh, for people who are on social welfare payments, who are on pension, yeah. who are getting back to work to, to minimise the effects of that. Mm. I can't guarantee that this budget will prevent uh, inflation next year. You can't guarantee it either. Well, I, I, th- I think, I, I think most informed commentators will say that the rate of inflation is uh, going to be such that you're looking at those who are less well-off in the country at the moment being less well-off. Yeah, predominantly I mean, predominantly because of energy prices, which are set to increase uh, between 400 and 800 euro a year, as I'm sure you know and accept, Minister, uh, and 500 euro a year is a tenner a week. It's quite simple yeah, so, maths. Very yeah, simple so, so. for anybody to work out. Uh, and not to, to, to mention... the. Uh, the the uh, extra cost that that will prompt to the price of peas and everything else for that matter. Okay, so, so Michael, I'm not trying to argue with you about the cost of living, but I'm trying to say is a budget of a 4.7 billion package has to look right across the country to try and see what we can do to protect this country and to future-proof it and to deal with the fallout from COVID. Mm. It doesn't mean we we can solve every problem. We've had as a couple of years there a very low inflation. But you're giving somebody on forty thousand euro eight euro a week. Again, what you're trying to do there is protect the tax plans that if they, if they, you know, with the various 
charges increase. So you give a pensioner five and you give somebody on 40,000 euro eight. What do you give somebody to tw- on yeah, 25,000? Yeah, and somebody on 25,000 euro gets two euro. Yeah. So Michael, when, when you go through all the figures and compare them, roughly, yeah. uh, because the person on the 40,000 euro is going out to work, there's a cost to doing that. Uh, the pensioner does not have to go to work. Some, some might decide. To so, what about the twenty-five thousand euro in- in- income yeah. person? Yeah. So you're trying to, with all the movement of tax bans, with the social welfare increases and the very supports, you're trying to even out that you're that you're trying to be fair right across the board. It so, doesn't mean. So, so it doesn't cost them as not as much to go to work. Is that what it is? It, it does, but it's okay. So they get two euro, and somebody on forty thousand gets eight euro. Sorry, Mike, can I make the, it's relative to what you're earning. It's a percentage of your earnings. Oh, come on. Our tax, Michael, our Seriously, tax come on. Really? Michael, I'm not sure what, you're, what you want to do here. Our tax system is progressive. So the more you earn, the more tax you pay. And likewise, if you adjust tax plans, then the more you earn, it, you know, you're, you're affecting yeah. the changes there as well. Well, tell us about so the special assignee relief programme. Sorry, Michael? Tell us a, a little bit about the special assignee relief programme, the SARP programme. Yeah, that programme was brought in as an initiative by my own department when I was in mm. it about seven or eight years ago to attract in high-skilled here. 38 so million is going to go into this next year. So, so to be clear here, what, what this is, is a spend on key employees that are brought into a company to help those companies yeah. grow and expand, increase their sales and increase their jobs. So it's a, it, well, we would see it as a... This is a tax spend. break of 30% for people earning more than €75,000 a year. Between €75,000 and a million euro a year. They get tax breaks for their children going to private schools or if they go overseas and all of that sort of thing. And the okay. government is going to spend €38.2 million on that this year. Right. So can I explain, Michael, what, what that's about? OK? That is to attract in high-end talent into this country that helps us grow jobs in sector. So, in mm. other words, if that spend, if that belief wasn't there, those people would work in a different country and they wouldn't be here at all. What kind so of people are they? Are they, are, are they the likes of the bankers? No, they're not. Right. They're, that's a very high end. It's generally targeted at the science community, the research and development, bringing in highly skilled people here to train up new teams in Ireland to mm. help our companies to help grow jobs. I'm, I'm very happy with that initiative. It's there for a reason. It was a target approach brought in during the last financial crisis to try to help job creation. And again, Michael, I've always said, certainly from my point of view, Yes, this budget is a strong uh, effort to support business and to support mm. jobs. Well, it'll support the, the banks. You, you, support, you see the wage subsidy continuing. You see the rates rebate there. Mm. The fast rate has been kept down for hospitality. Mm. This is a, an effort to help people get back to work. And there's various targeted beliefs across the systems which are generally focused at what's an, an, an assistant yeah. to this country to grow it economically. Okay. Uh, it'll uh, be a good budget for the banks, won't it? Why would you say that now? Uh, because of the bank levy. The minister has written off 40% of it. Yeah, he's decided uh, not to chase 63 million euro. No, there's two banks that are leaving the, yes. are leaving the country. So the bank levy does not change. The rate of the levy stays the same, but you have two banks that won't be operating and are reducing in this country. So the bank levy... Is so why is it that Ulster Bank and KBC won't have to pay their levy? So that the, the, basically the Minister of Finance has said that those two are, are leaving the country. He's obviously worked this out. The levy generally is 150 million. It's brought in. It'll bring in something like 96 million extra. There, that's the predictions of the Department of Finance. Um, but it's not. Um, it, it's, it's the levy. The banks still pay the levy, and that's the levy on some of the profits as well. And again, um, we've started trying to see a, a, the banking sector recover over the last couple of years, given primary again as well. I would rather that we've seen that those banks weren't leaving this country, but they are. But we've we've a big effort here to make sure that lending is still competitive. But that's why another part of the yesterday's budget was 
an extension of funding from my department to fund the credit guarantee, which is helping to reduce the cost of, of lending to business. Um, and ninety percent of cases now lending through the COVID guarantee, mm. and the credit guarantee is down to under three percent, which is a massive reduction in what they've been charged. That's a positive again to help people's jobs. Okay, and well, give business a chance to recover. It wasn't very positive when the banks were going to cost us sixty-four billion euro. The target was one hundred and fifty million euro in levies on the banks this year. It'll be eighty-seven million, which is a shortfall of sixty-three million. And, and again, Michael, part of my work in government over the last three governments is to make sure the banks have paid back the money that was invested in this country. And then in the majority of cases, they are and have paid back their money and we still have, have shares in AIB that I think are roughly worth the same we put into them. So the, the banking money, the bailout, uh, which is as much as it, as it sickened all of us in this country back in the time, uh, over time we will get the majority of that money back. Um, I'm not saying that's, that's something that, that uh, people are happy with, that mm. the banks had to be bailed out, but that's something that happened 10 years okay. ago. I think as a country... We have recovered quite well and the public finances are back in order and that's why, yeah. yes, it is budget is is a positive one, yes. Well, everybody in the country the owes €50,000 uh, if you look at the national debt uh, uh, and indeed uh, some people will undoubtedly uh, be uh, where they are today next year but quite a, a lot of people, the less well-off, will undoubtedly be less well-off next year and there's no uh, doubt about that. Uh, but again, Michael, what's important here, are we investing in services? Yes, we are in education. Great, great progress there for mm. students living in Loud to meet with their Jason Grant. Uh, big improvements in health. Okay. Uh, excellent with tackle waiting list. So I think we'll all benefit from, from the money. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm not sure that will help people heat their homes uh, if uh, they have no income other than uh, their welfare payment, whether that's the pension or otherwise. But, Minister, we leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, perhaps, Minister, uh, if uh, you have uh, time in your schedule next week or the week after, we uh, can talk to you about some local issues like the hospital and uh, the North South Interconnector, which people would like to hear from you on. But as I say, we leave it there for the moment. Uh, that's uh, Damien English, Minister of State and Finnegale TD for Meath West. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, to a speech uh, the UK's uh, chief uh, Brexit negotiator David Frost gave in Lisbon yesterday about the ongoing saga that is Brexit. The biggest current problem between us, the Northern Ireland Protocol, is the biggest source of mistrust between us. And for all kinds of reasons, we need to fix this problem. I recognise that's not easy. The history here does matter. I do understand why the EU finds it difficult to come back to an agreement that was reached only two years ago, though obviously that in itself is is far from unusual in international relations. Equally, there's a widespread feeling in the UK that the EU did try to use Northern Ireland to encourage UK political forces to reverse the referendum results, or at least to keep us closely aligned with the EU. And moreover, that the protocol represents a moment of EU overreach when the UK's negotiating hand was tied and therefore cannot reasonably last in its current form. Today, the Vice President of the European Commission, Maurice Safkovich, will publish four papers which Europe hopes will provide solutions to the issues being raised by the UK. This is what David Frost said about this yesterday. We're now heading into a crucial few weeks. We await the proposals that are coming tomorrow from Maurice Safkovich and the Commission in response to our ideas. I want to be clear, we'll be really ready to discuss them, whatever they say, and we will obviously consider them seriously, fully and positively. But I repeat, if we're going to get to a solution, we must collectively deliver significant change. We need the EU to show the same ambition and willingness to tackle the fundamental issues at the heart of the protocol head on. 
That's why I'm sharing with the Commission today a new legal text, the text of an amended protocol reflecting the proposals in our command paper and supporting not undermining the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. David Frost, let's talk uh, to Declan Kearney, who's uh, the chairperson of Sinn Féin and MLA for South Antrim and a junior minister in the executive. Good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, do you believe him? Because uh, it seems as uh, though the EU is going to solve a lot of those issues, those issues uh, that he says are fundamental issues from the UK's perspective or the loyalist perspective, if you prefer. But I'm not sure that uh, the UK are in the mood of negotiating as such. Thanks for having me on the show. Yes, big questions as to whether they are in the, the zone of uh, resolving these issues. If you cast your mind back to the Tory party conference uh, just about 10 days ago, we had a lot of bluster and sabre rattling from David Frost at that stage. Uh, then in the last 48 hours, we've, uh, we've had the, this dead cat intervention made by him over the European Court of Justice, uh, all attempts to try and move the goalposts. And uh, I think the uh, speech in Portugal may well now be exposing or highlighting his, his actual agenda. I think we're looking at a, potentially looking at a situation here where uh, David Frost is no longer even trying to shift the goalposts anymore. He's trying to bulldoze the football pitch. And uh, these inflammatory remarks, this type of uh, confrontational approach, really raises questions as to whether there is any pretense of good faith on the part of the, the British government. The timing to of it... To, I'm sorry, yes. the, time, the timing of it yesterday was curious, wasn't it? Oh, uh, I don't think it was at all curious. I think it was quite premeditated. It does come on the back of commentary at the Tory party conference, comments made earlier this week, and I think that uh, this is about uh, taking a much more confrontational approach in the knowledge that the European Commission Vice President Maros Shevchevich is bringing forward proposals today. Now, I believe that David Frost and his team are, uh, are clear on the shape, the contours of what Maros Shevchevich is bringing forward, if not the detail. They certainly have the contours because uh, we certainly have... Uh, some sense of what is going to be proposed. And I think that uh, the European Commission proposals are going to be very substantive and very far-reaching, and they are going to uh, resolve uh, the issues that have been causing some degree of concern here in relation mm. to the operation of the protocol. Well, that seems to be the case. Uh, you preempted my next question, which is, uh, will they address those concerns? Uh, because there's four papers uh, which we look at different aspects of uh, the protocol, but it, it seems that, in essence, if you put aside the issue that is now being raised about the European Court of Justice, Europe has come up with the solutions from a British perspective. Uh, they're going to solve the sausage problem, and and, uh, the cancer medication problem and so forth. Yes, and if you go back to uh, the 21st of July, I think it was, the European Commission at that point in time produced uh, a number of what they described as non-papers. That's bringing forward some high-level thinking in relation to how matters such as medicines and agri-food could be successfully addressed. Maro Shevchevich then came with a mission from the European Commission uh, to Ireland and uh, then came into the six counties at the beginning of September and he and his team engaged extensively with politicians, business leaders, civic leaders 
they met dozens of people in relation to uh, where we were currently at, what were the issues in relation to the protocol. And he invited business leaders in the North to share with him practical workable ideas that could be factored into European Commission thinking in relation to how, for example, uh, agri-food checks issues, uh, distributional supply of medicines could be addressed. Mm. He said he would take that on board. I believe that is what has happened. Mm. I believe a lot of work has been done behind the scenes by European Commission officials in the intervening months, and that what we're going to see this afternoon is the effect of that type of consultation that uh, they committed to carrying out with uh, business leaders here in the north. Our own party, Sinn Féin, has remained very closely engaged with the European Commission throughout, as has the Irish government, and I think we will see the product of all of that hard work on our behalf uh, later today. Okay. Take me uh, to the issue of the European Court of Justice. Uh, is, is it right to say that the European Commission has been told, Marusevkiewicz has been told, that there are all of these problems to do with uh, the movement uh, of agri-products, the uh, importation of sausages, if you like, uh, getting medicines into Northern Ireland, obstacles uh, that have uh, been put in place as a result of uh, the protocol. He's gone away and he's come back with the solutions and that clears the table. And that the role of the European Court of Justice then is that if that is agreeable to everybody, that they would oversee that that is what's happening on the ground. The the European Court of Justice issue, I think, has been elevated uh, and exaggerated by by uh, David Frost mm. for for entirely expedient and opportunistic reasons. The reality is that the European Court of Justice uh, oversees in circumstances where there's a need for dispute resolution or arbitration um, the the tra- the flow of trade for 27 other members across the European Union when that need arises. Hmm. The, the British state ha- was, up until 2016, a member of the, uh, yeah. the, uh, the, the, the European Union for nearly 50 years, so they, they understand clearly the role of the ECJ. David Frost himself signed off on the inclusion of a role for the ECJ within the protocol uh, because he is the British government lead negotiator. Now he's changing his mind. But there is a logical corollary to what has been agreed by David Frost mm. and Maro Shevchevich, the British government and mm. the European Commission, in relation to the European uh, Court of Justice functions, because uh, goods and the flow of goods within the North and from the North are, are still an integral part of the European single market. OK, but what I'm asking is... The role of the European Court of Justice won't or shouldn't make any difference, should it, to the agreement that the UK reaches with Europe? I'm sorry, does well, that... It is, part, it, it, it is part of the agreement. Yes, but... Uh, that's but, the point but, that, but, but, but That's the point that I'm making to you. Mm. But 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 in its role, its role will be oversight, uh, and uh, it'll resolve disputes. Uh, but the agreement is the agreement, is it not? Absolutely correct. Yes, yes it is indeed. Okay. And, mm-hmm. and and this particular so, point. So, so the I, role that the ECJ will have in this is oversight. It, it makes no. It has no bearing on the agreement itself. No, not at all. I yeah, mean, the, okay. ag- the agreement. The agreement is in place. Yeah. I think that this has been raised as a as a side issue 
uh, to distract away. The ECJ is the referee, the in other British words. Government. In simple yeah, terms, absolutely. it's the referee. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got two sides in this, and the ECJ is the referee. Okay, let's uh, hear what David Frost had to say about the ECJ. That proposal looks more like a normal treaty in the way it's governed, with international arbitration instead of a system of EU law ultimately policed in the court of one of the parties, the European Court of Justice. I think the Commission have been a bit too quick to dismiss governance as a side issue, and the reality is the opposite. The role of the Court of Justice and the EU institutions in Northern Ireland are creating a situation where there's no discretion about how provisions in the protocol are implemented. The Commission's decision to launch infraction proceedings against us earlier this year at the very first sign of disagreement shows why these arrangements are so hard to make work in practice. But it's not just about the Court. It's about the system of which the court is the apex, the system which means the EU can make laws which apply in Northern Ireland without any kind of democratic scrutiny or discussion. None of this we can now see will work as part of a durable settlement. Indeed, without new arrangements in this area, no protocol will ever have the support across Northern Ireland it needs to survive. What is he saying there, Declan Kearney? Is it that the referee, the European Court of Justice, uh, can decide to to give uh, the British a yellow card or a red card if it's misbehaving, if it's not following uh, what has been agreed under the protocol? Or is it that it will facilitate new laws being introduced without agreement with the British by the European Union? No, I think he's giving himself cover in relation to a position this British government have adopted to resign from uh, its obligations under this international treaty. This isn't the first international treaty that this particular British administration have taken to shredding and tearing up. That's what we're seeing before us in plain sight. The the fact is that uh, we are going to see uh, proposals, I believe, under governance later today from the European Commission that's in in fact going to address an increased democratic and transparent role for stakeholders with what is called the Joint Consultative Working Group. And I believe we're going to see proposals whereby the European Commission will invite a role for the uh, Six Counties Assembly Mm. uh, in relation to the EU and British uh, government uh, Parliamentary Assembly that is provided for in the uh, in, in, in the uh, in the protocol. Mm. So I, I actually think that we're going to see uh, opportunities here for increased democratic involvement by political leaders in the north of Ireland in relation to the future operation of the protocol. And to date, you see, mm-hmm. we have been excluded. We have been excluded by the British government, by David Frost, mm. and having any real meaningful role or input to those processes. And I I think this is a really important point to make for your listeners this morning. When Maros Shevchevich came here and did all of the meetings I described back in September, he has since said to the IIEA in Dublin just last week that in the course of all of those meetings, only one person raised with him the issue of the European Court of Justice. I myself met with uh, Maros Shevchevich alongside DUP politicians, and none of those DUP politicians raised the issue of the European Court of Justice as an issue. So I think this is a complete distraction. It is about uh, a negotiation tactic. The difficulty is, and this is my fear, that uh, David Frost may well now be on a trajectory to rip up the entire agreement and and to actually uh, stand off any meaningful form of talks 
with the European Commission once the proposals are published later today. God forbid, but that is the way uh, it seems to be heading. We leave it there for the moment and thank you for joining us on the programme. Declan Kearney, Sinn Féin MLA for South Antrim and uh, Junior Minister in the Executive is uh, the Chairperson of Sinn Féin. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Thanks to Theresa who was on the phone to us. Uh, Theresa says she can't believe uh, pensioners were given just five euro extra in uh, the budget. She says it is a disgrace and I won't vote for any of them again. The price of fuel is going up so an extra fibre won't make much difference. I'm very disappointed but also angry. I had to pay 200 euro two weeks ago for an emergency dentist appointment for my husband who has cancer. We couldn't get a dentist to take him on a medical card. We had to do without to pay for it. Thank you, Theresa, for sharing that with us uh, this morning. Uh, Another call comes to us from Margaret, uh, who says uh, that while it's great for parents uh, that free GP care has been extended to kids up to seven years of age, that this measure is only going to place more pressure on GPs. It's certainly what the GPs are worried about, Margaret. She says it's hard enough at the moment to get an appointment. And Margaret says uh, that because practices seem to have too many patients, you could be waiting for days, which is not right when you're sick. And maybe you need an antibiotic. Thanks, uh, Margaret, for that. Another call to us uh, from Tom about the budget too. Tom is aghast that the price of fags has gone up again. It's now €15 a pack. He'd love to give up and has tried, but he just can't. He can't understand why cigarettes were targeted again. He feels it's very unfair. Thank you, Tom, for your call. Thanks, everybody. We'll come to lots more of those calls and a lot of people in touch with us today. We'll come to lots more of uh, the comments as we go through the programme this morning. But let's go to the phones now. Kiva McIntyre is on the phone. And a very good morning to you, Kiva, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. Thanks for your email for that matter. And maybe you'd uh, tell us a, a little bit about your young daughter, Emily is just nine and she has COVID I understand she does she um, she contracted COVID in school um, there had been uh, confirmed cases within her class that the parents from the school had been notified about via email on the 1st of October and on the 8th of October um, Emily has since tested positive on Sunday past following her test on on Saturday mm. Um, and I noticed that no more emails have been coming through from the school to notify the parents of this class of new cases. Right. Um, so there's more cases, you know that, because Emily is one of them. Uh, if uh, there's uh, there's at I least one case. More which than is that, yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, and you're wondering why that is the case? Yes. Mm. Yeah. I'm wondering why the, the parents just aren't being notified. Um, as as they have been done before. Now I did I did contact the school yesterday morning, and um, but I, I emailed the school and I received a phone call from a senior member of staff who advised me that they don't actually need to send the emails. They're following guidelines, and as per their guide their guidelines from the government, they don't need to send us the emails that they were they were sending those. I suppose as um, they taught themselves it was the right thing to do, which definitely it is. Mm. But it's also the right thing to continue doing it, I suppose, mm. I believe. Mm. Um, and the, the the words said to me on the phone call yesterday where they don't believe that it's going to do the school any good by sending out any more of these emails. Now, I'm not having a go at the school. That's mm. not what this call is about at no. all. Well, the school don't make up the rules in, in well, terms of them, yeah. Mm. That's it. It's... Mm. it's it, the, the government and the Department of Education and Health that the problems lie with. Mm. And 
like since the schools reopened in late August or early September, about 1,200 children were being forced to restrict their movements every day as close contacts. This was reported on the 15th of September. And 10 days later, the government changed their measures regarding school environments. There's no logic in this decision. Yeah. COVID cases among primary school children increased by 48% in the space of a week before this decision was made also. There's, there's, no, there's yeah. no thought put behind it. The, I understand that the kids need their education. They need to be in school for mental health reasons also, but not to the detriment of their own health. Yeah, well, that's true. Um, I mean, uh, a lot of people would uh, agree with that, uh, and I suppose that's the balance that they're trying to get. But you were trying to get answers yourself, and you went to the Department of Health. They said, well, it's not for us to answer. They sent you to the Department of Education. They haven't responded to you, or have they as yet? No, I no. haven't heard any response from the Department of Education as of yet either. No, and as I said, you emailed us yesterday, and we got in touch with the Department of Education. They haven't responded to us as yet either. Uh, and you're particularly concerned about Emily uh, because she's diabetic she is she was diagnosed June of last year with type 1 diabetes and I really didn't know how contracting COVID was going to affect her Hmm. now she is doing very well thankfully Um, she had a bit of a bad day yesterday and she's not great this morning but she's doing she's doing very very well Hmm. Um, she's she's lucky Hmm. but I think forewarned is forearmed really Had, had I known in good time, I would have made the decision to take Emily from school and homeschool her myself, take the time out of work and homeschool her myself mm. to make sure that the COVID was no longer in, in the class or as best out of the class as possible mm-hmm. before I let her return. And you're out of work now, I take it, uh, because I am. COVID's in the I house. Am. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. it's in the house and yeah. Emily needs to be cared for. She needs her insulin four times a day and she needs to be she needs to be checked on every two hours with her with her diabetes. So mm. she needs to care twenty four seven here at home. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, I, I I just strongly feel that yeah. this should be known everywhere. Well, it you're is. you're at risk now, and uh, very much at risk, I'd imagine, uh, of uh, catching COVID uh, because you're looking after Emily yes. uh, and everybody in the house. And I suppose that's another aspect to it that if it wasn't in the house if Emily hadn't been in school it wouldn't be in the house and you wouldn't be at risk well that's it exactly mm. and I have another daughter in the house as well and mm. she too has to isolate in her room because just for, for obvious reasons we don't want her catching it either mm. um, but look it's, it's, it's one of those things where you're, you're chasing you're chasing different avenues and not getting any answers and all you want really is for one, the, the parents ought to be informed as things happen, so they have the, the choice and the opportunity to protect their children as they see fit mm. and to have the tactical advantage of of making the, the decision as to whether or not they want their, their kids in that environment. Um, I know not everybody feels the same way about it. Um, Emily is a high-risk pupil because of her, her underlying health condition, but I'm sure there's a lot of parents or most of the parents who would agree with me. Anybody that I have spoken to about it are fully in agreement with me Mm. Um, that this could, that we all, we all believe that this could have been avoided for most of the pupils who have now contracted it. It's, it's making its way through the classroom and I believe through the school like wildfire. Mm. 
Uh, it doesn't warrant thinking about, does it? And it seems to be rampant. It seems that there's an awful lot of people who are doubly vaccinated or are catching it uh, as well, for that matter. Uh, I take it you're vaccinated yourself, Keith. I am. Yeah, I'm yeah, vaccinated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully you'll stay well. And I'm sure you'll be watching uh, Emily and minding her uh, very closely over the course of uh, the coming days. Absolutely. Uh, we, nothing really to add to it. Uh, we haven't heard back from uh, the department. Uh, I'm not sure that we're going to because I, I think the school is following uh, the protocol nationally. Uh, but oh. your 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 point is that that shouldn't be the protocol. The policy should be different. The policy definitely should be different. It definitely should be different. And I do think that the parents need to be notified as early as possible when there's new cases of COVID in the class. There was an email sent out on the 4th of October where they were able to notify us about headlights. So, <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, mm. it's it's preposterous that they won't notify us about something an awful lot more serious that could have profound effects on many students. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I'm sure you're very anxious at the moment for a lot of reasons. Uh, probably more anxious than you would be uh, if Emily came home with head lice for that matter. <laughs> yeah. All right, Kiva. Listen, thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us and uh, making you. those points. Much appreciated. Let me go back to Tom. Uh, I read Tom's comment out a, a moment ago. I don't know where Tom is going to come up with the 15 euro every time he wants a smoke. It's an awful lot of money. And as Tom was saying, he's trying to give up. He'd love to give up, but he just can't. Uh, Tom, so, uh, listen, as, as a doctor, can you ask me this question is, the amount of people that smoking, do you actually know how, how, how these cigarettes are manufactured? Do you actually know what, what actually goes into a cigarette? Do actually people know how dangerous these cigarettes are? Because I'll be honest here, what really does annoy me at the moment is, and you can go into any pub, you can go to any place at the moment is, and these contrabands, these ones that's totally legal as well is, what's the difference between the legal cigarettes and the illegal cigarettes? So I'm just trying to say to you, like, I remember I was in the head committee there a few years back, and we, all these people kept coming in and asking this question. Nobody seems to be able to tell us what actually goes into cigarettes. But I know what it is, it is very, very bad. And I'd like to know is the amount of money that is causing treating these people. And I, I speak to a lot of people, and I, I, sorry, I don't smoke. And thanks be to God I don't smoke. But I'm just trying to say to you, uh, we should be trying to encourage people to go off cigarettes. Because most of the people that do smoke don't want to smoke. And they do want help. So my suggestion at the moment is, this 50 cents that you're going to put on the cigarettes for midnight tonight is, is there any chance that maybe that money that you're getting in at the moment is, maybe do, do something that, like, smoking is, it really is an addiction. Because a lot of people don't want to smoke, and they do want help. And, like, and, and in fairness, like, like, I'm listening to people criticise me the budget of days. That budget is a good budget. I'm an independent. It, it is a good budget. And honestly, you want to be, you, it really is very hard to find anything wrong with the budget. Because in fairness, you ticked everything, you dotted everything, and everything seems to be pretty good with the budget. But let's, let's look at it. This cigarette situation is not going to go away. And the amount of people that's in the hospital, the amount of people dying, a lot of young people dying, and leaving young families behind them. Swanson says, let's do something good with this budget. Let's do something decent with this 50 cents. And I guarantee you, I know this 50 cents is not going to be thousands or hundreds of thousands. This is going to be millions. Is there any possibility? Just, just see how it goes. Just this budget for once and for all. And say, listen, the 50 cents we're going to get in, we're going to do research, we're going to help people there at the moment. Because I'm going to ask this question is, I don't know what's going into a cigarette. And I will be honest with you, I smoked one cigarette in my life. I was a school behind it when I went to classrooms. And, I, and uh, I want to be one of these, well, I want to be popular with the rest of my friends. And I took a puff of it, and it was absolutely dreadful. And thanks be to God, you know what I mean? So I'm just trying to say, Tony, let's, let, you know, a good budget. So I'm just trying to say to you, and, let, and I guarantee you, one thing, if you can help these people, uh, Tony Shaw, 
and also to this illegal smuggling. We have to do something serious wrong with that there. Because I'm convinced we don't know what's going into these legal cigarettes. If we don't know what's going into the legal cigarettes, what's going into them illegal cigarettes? That's Peter Fitzpatrick, Independent TD for Loud and East Meath, uh, speaking uh, to the motion last night to increase the cost of cigarettes by that 50 cent, uh, which is now the case. I would imagine it be the case in a few days. Uh, it's possible uh, that some shops are, are charging it already because maybe they got deliveries this morning. Uh, of course, if the stock was in the shop yesterday, uh, they shouldn't be charging the 50 cent extra. Uh, but an interesting point from Peter Fitzpatrick there. John and Avon in touch with us. He, he wants to say that he was hoping that pensioners wouldn't get that fiver in the budget as it would make no difference to them really and many of them can do without it. He, he says money was borrowed to give to the OAPs and nearly 90% of them don't need it. The extra money in the budget should have been given to the workers who are sustaining the tax system who are struggling to pay mortgages and childcare and so on. Thanks indeed, uh, John and Navin. I imagine that there's some pensioners uh, who would disagree with you. Now, we were talking about Brexit uh, not so long ago. Uh, here's one of the main voices from the Brexit campaign, Nigel Farage. This message is for Brian Kelleher, Brexiteer. And I hope you have a great birthday. This comes from your good friend Aidan. Now, it's a bit early in the day, so all I've got actually is coffee. But I hope you enjoy a few pints with the lads tonight. Up the ra. <laughs> That's <laughs> Nigel Farage. Uh, I'm not sure uh, if he knew. Actually, he says he didn't know what he was saying. Uh, he was getting paid to read out messages on the internet uh, and someone stung him. Uh, really hard to believe that uh, Nigel Farage actually said. I hope you enjoy a few pints with the lads tonight. Up the ra. <laughs> Up the ra. Oh, my God. I'd say Nigel Farage was scarlet when he <laughs> understood what he had just said. Anyway, there you go. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now back to the budget and uh, this time from a Fianna Fáil perspective. Uh, Thomas Byrne is uh, the Minister for European Affairs and a Fianna Fáil TD for me, the East. Good morning to you, Minister. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Is there a Fianna Fáil stamp on the announcements that were made yesterday? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm really, really pleased with the budget. I mean, obviously, Michael McGrath and that's public expenditure. Uh, what we've seen there in our, I suppose, our three priority areas, huge investment, whether it's housing, whether it's health, uh, childcare, but also you see the Fianna Fáil stamp on items like education. Uh, and the one particular thing that I'm really, really pleased about in education that really affects Mead, for example, uh, and Loud as well, is the change of the non-adjacent rate for third-level grants. So up to recently, uh, you had to live more than 45 kilometres from your university or college to get the non-adjacent rate of grant. That's been reduced down to 30. Now, there are literally thousands of students across Mead East, Mead West, Loud, who are going to benefit from this. And it's about 2,000 a year uh, in, in grants because they're now going to come within the non-adjacent rate. And I think that's a huge advance. And yeah. certainly it's a big bone of contention in my constituency office over the last year. That's just one example that really probably hasn't got traction because of all, all the big stuff, mm-hmm. but it has a, will have a really positive impact uh, right across this radio region. And uh, an increase in the SUSE grants as well. And, and apart mm-hmm. from an increase in the SUSE grant, yeah, mm-hmm. but those students in this particular radio region, uh, the parents, maybe lots of them and the students mm-hmm. themselves listen to this show, are going to benefit hugely from that change in the non-adjacent rate. It's a major win for students in Mead and Leeds. OK. Uh, problem for a lot of students is, uh, though, that they can't afford anywhere to live. 
That's that's correct. And of course, this this will now give uh, students who live more than 30 kilometres away from their college, whether it's in Dublin or whether it's in, in Dundalk, for example, um, they're going to now have the non-adjacent rate. So, so that's going to give them, it's about 2,000 extra a year maximum rate. So that's a really significant boost to them. But yeah, housing is a major problem. But that's why it's obviously the most important challenge that we face uh, in this budget. It's the most important challenge that we face in this government. What we've done um, over the last... Uh, year since coming into office, apart from dealing with the COVID crisis, where by the way, and you know, I was no problem coming on and taking the criticism at various points from you and the hard questions, Michael, on, on COVID. We're now, we're now number one in the world in terms of COVID resilience because of the, the work that our frontline staff have done, uh, the adherence of our public uh, to the rules and the decision, decisions of government as well around vaccinations and, and, and health and the advice of public health experts. So all of us combined have made us number one. We're determined now use that to, to put that template now into practice in other areas of government. So that's housing, that's the general health service, childcare, etc. We can do this. We can be number one. Why can't we? Uh, so we've put together housing for all. Um, the budget then starts the process of housing for all. How, the reality is on housing, we're about 10 years behind. Mm-hmm. So the housing for all plan is a 10-year plan. So what we're looking to see by 2025 is 4,000 new affordable purchase homes every year. 2,000 new affordable, what's called cost rental homes, which essentially is social housing for people who are working. And then, of course, we want to do every year 9,500 new build social homes. So that's not purchase or you know, rent, long-term leasing, whatever, that's new build uh, by, by, paid for by the exchequer. So, so the amount of money that's been put into the exchequer for housing next year is 6 billion. That's a record. It's a 15.6% increase on the allocation last year. And it's a f- nearly a 50% increase over the last three years. So the housing budget is absolutely massive. Now, it'll never be enough for the opposition. Like whatever figure we put out, they'll criticise. But this is huge. And I think really, I think any fair analysis would, would accept that. Right. Uh, but uh, it's not enough by uh, a lot of uh, analyses uh, for that matter and uh, that uh, the ambition is not great enough and that there's far too much focus on uh, the private market uh, to provide housing uh, through the Housing for All scheme, uh, which will leave a, a lot of people excluded. Uh, one of the things that was introduced, uh, which has been the subject of much criticism yesterday, uh, is uh, this zoned land tax, a vacant land tax uh, of 3%, uh, which is, of course, far lower than what was the vacant site levy of 7%. Sure, Michael, the vacant site levy was a complete and utter disaster, and Sinn Féin were saying that. And now we bring in a new scheme, which is now going to force properties onto the market, not in two years' time, but now, actually, because they need to get these properties offloaded. There's now actually a tax that Fianna Fáil brought in. And what this relates to, uh, this is actually a wealth tax. So Sinn Féin have been looking for a wealth tax for, for years. We've now brought in a wealth tax on zoned land to ensure, not for the sake of charging a wealth tax, that's not something to think works long term, but for the sake of ensuring this land comes in the market and houses get mm. built. And this goes back, we've heard a lot of talk over years, this Kenny report, which is a revolutionary report, unfortunately, I think it was 50 years ago. This actually is what's implementing the Kenny report. So Fianna Fáil and government is doing that. So, you know, we, 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 I, I was astonished by the criticism from Sinn Féin about this. But if you look at some of the empty buildings uh, around uh, Drogheda or Navan or Dundalk, uh, there's a vacant site levy on them of 7%, isn't it's there? not actually. No, you see, that's the problem. The vacant site levy was an absolute disaster in terms of implementation. And it really depended on local authorities putting properties forward for the levy. Some were put forward, quite frankly, some. I couldn't understand why they weren't put forward. It 
mm. is just unbelievable. So it has done very, very little. This is actually going to bring that type of property into the system. That's exactly at three what per, At three percent, though. Yeah, yeah. But why not at seven percent? That's what we have decided because clearly this, we think this is going to work. The seven percent, Michael, was absolute fantasy because the way the system was set up, it simply wasn't possible. But there's serious hardcore analysis I read this morning that's saying we've given a two-year lead-in on that because that will allow property. What's going to happen is land is going to come for sale. And that's going to take a little while to go through. It goes in the market, has to be ready. It's going to come for sale now. And that's not just zone land, that's all the way down, except residential houses, actually, in the gardens is excluded from it. But all that empty property as well uh, will have to go on this. And local authorities will have to do the job to make sure uh, this, we, we, we capture all of this. So there were difficulties with the previous scheme, and that's why we're in government now to change that and to get this land onto the market for housing. Right, uh, but some of that land won't be taxed for up to three years, depending on when it was first owned. No, but hang on a second. It's going to come in. Yeah, but the the the, the second, like the the bit that's a bit longer, is, is zoning from January next year. So that's not land that's already zoned. So land that's already zoned is going to come in from twenty twenty four January. But the truth is, you do want to be getting that land off your. If you're a landowner, you need to get that land off your books very very quickly to avoid this tax. And that's what we want to happen. We want to see this land coming in the market quickly. Um, and getting it out there for housing. So, so actually, for landowners, in my opinion, this is a huge incentive now to get that empty land off your hands, sell it, because that tax is coming at you at a very high rate. Land values also are quite high at the moment. So this tax, if people decide that they're going to hang on, they're going to have to pay a fortune. This is a wealth tax, but a wealth tax that's designed not for the sake of it, but for the sake of getting houses built for people. Okay. The help to buy scheme uh, has been the subject of much criticism and that's to be extended. It's not been criticised, Michael, by any person who's bought a house under the help to buy scheme. The help, anyone I know, and I know lots of people, in their 20s and 30s have been able to buy houses with the help to buy scheme. They are absolutely supportive of it. I've heard the opposition criticising it, like everything they criticise. But you ask anybody who's in a help to buy scheme... And absolutely. Well, delighted. you ask anybody about house prices and they know that they're through the roof. Is this helping to inflate the price of housing? No, it's not. It's not. What we need, but the, the big problem we have with housing, the big problem is supply. So the whole housing for all plan is about supply. It's about getting, that's why the, I mean, the private market's important. Not for the sake of the private market, but to get more houses on the, on the market, that brings mm. the prices down. Um, so, so, so that's what we're all about here. Okay, you mentioned the health service. Uh, what's been done to take 907,000 people off waiting lists? Well, obviously, we've come through a COVID situation uh, where obviously, and I think every health service in the world, every health service in the world has been badly affected by COVID and we're, we're no exception. But I think huge amounts of work have been done. We saw this week that Stephen Donnelly has put in additional money even before the budget uh, into getting waiting lists down. We understand and know that we need to increase capacity. We need more hospital beds, community care beds. We need more doctors, nurses and consultants. And yes, by the way, Michael, they will be coming to Navin Hospital too. And um, to be very, very clear, despite all of the negativity around Navin Hospital over the next few weeks, we're going to see more people treated in Navin Hospital in the next few years. We're going to yeah, see and that's the problem people have with that. But, what, what, but 250 million euro for 900,000 people. When I, when I genuinely was abroad and couldn't come in your radio program to talk about Navin Hospital, I'm going to get the positives out of this today. There's been too much negativity. This hospital is going to see more people in it. It's going to see more procedures done. Mm. And I'm going to ensure that there's more services. Uh, to, yeah, to when the emergency department closes. But €250 million... Euro. The emergency department is not closing, Michael. Stephen Donnelly has ordered a halt to any plans for that. He has had nothing from the, from the, from the HSE on this. We've had nothing on this. It's not happening. 
um, and we want to get back and meet the doctors and see what the concerns are that we've read about really through rumour and speculation. We want to see what exactly the concerns are. And well, we you read the HSE letter which says that the board met in July and uh, they've decided to close the emergency department and with that the ICU beds. Well, I, I can tell you that myself and Minister Damien English had a meeting with Stephen Donnelly, a number of meetings over the last few weeks. And in fact, we've spoken to doctors too. OK. And why weren't the opposition TDs invited? Well, we're organising meetings, which is what we want to happen between mm. all of the TDs and County Meads and the medical people okay. uh, in Navin Hospital. That's what, that's what we want to achieve. But yeah. Stephen Donnelly has decided to order the HSE not to proceed with this while we just see where we are, because we certainly have no information about transition plans. We have no information about what alternatives are there. We have no information about what... Uh, what, what what the full plan is uh, on this. And okay. But do you accept that the HSE the decided in July to close the emergency department and with that the ICU beds? The HSE has been looking since 2013. You accept that that was the case? The you, HSE, you've read that letter, Minister. The, H, the HSE has been looking to close this, not close it, but to change services uh, since 2013. We've been told... We've but been do you told accept that in July of this year the board met and made a I'm decision t- to execute that? I want to tell you what Minister Donnelly has decided, which is tell the board of the HSE not to proceed with this. Okay. So what about the 900,000 people on waiting lists? Well, that's why we want more services in all of our hospitals, including that. Mm. So what we're looking at, so this, for example, some of the things we're doing, we're increasing health expenditure by one billion, which is five, over 5%. It's going but to be the 250 most million for 900,000 people waiting on the procedure. Uh, you're talking about years to clear that waiting list. I don't think we're talking about years. I think what Mr. Donnelly, the government, has said is that waiting lists are an urgent priority for the government. Because the budget is allocating 250 million specifically mm. uh, to build upon for what about we've a million people on, on the acute uh, waiting list action plan. We've published that. This is an absolute priority. What we're looking at is 10.5 million put forward for 19 additional critical care beds in 2022 with an ICU capacity, for example, of 340 people. That's a third extra since since last year. A third extra, and that lasts beyond uh, the pandemic. There have been 800 additional acute hospital beds added to the hospital system compared to early 2020. That's the reality of what this government is doing. And yes, the pandemic has put everybody on the back foot in terms of hospital services. Absolutely. But we're absolutely determined, this is our priority, to make sure that our health services are responding All right, Minister, I'm sure you appreciate our focus has to be on the budget today. uh, And although we had only brief mention of uh, the hospital in Navin, perhaps uh, next week or the week after we can come back and talk about it. And if I'm not available to do your programme, as I've offered on a number of times before, Mm. I'm very happy to do pre record on these issues. And, you you know, unfortunately, LMFM allowed people to say that we were avoiding the programme. And I think on almost every occasion I've offered a pre record. Okay. I'm happy to do that if I'm not available between 9 and 11. Okay, Minister, thank you. And we leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, that is uh, the Minister for European Affairs, Fianna Fáil TD. For me, these Thomas Byrne. Michael Reed on LMFM. More reaction to the budget now. Mary, who was in touch with us on WhatsApp, says she doesn't uh, want to get started uh, on how she feels about all of this. She was born and reared uh, in uh, this country. She's in her 60s now and survived to the 80s, paying 12% on a council loan of €9,000 over her husband, having little work and a family to rear. While many took the boat to the UK, she's been a carer now for 30 years and she feels that more should have been done to help carers. Government 
has changed the conditions uh, to qualify for the allowance, which will be some help, but there should be more done to offer supports and services like respite, as many are run ragged at the minute. And she says it's time the government showed carers some respect in the guise of a bonus in their wages, along with the likes of doctors and nurses who sacrificed so much over recent months to keep us all safe and well. Well, what is the budget worth to you? I suppose it differs from person to person. Let's hear this analysis now from Social Democrats' uh, Roisin Shorthall. Single people on middle incomes, those earning between 25 and 35,000 a year, will get the sum total of €2 Euro per week, which is a quarter of what someone earning €100,000 will get. Couples with one income earning between 25,000 and 35,000 a year will also get a fraction of their better off counterparts. One euro per week if you're earning 25,000 euro. Nine euro per week if you're earning 100,000 euro. It's even worse for the self-employed. And, you know, the government talks a lot about encouraging people to set up small businesses and uh, people to do apprenticeships and set up as, as self-employed people. But if, if as, as, a, as a self-employed person, if you earn €20,000 or less, you get nothing at all from this budget. If you earn €25,000 as a self-employed person, you get €1 Euro per week. Self-employed people don't seem to benefit at all unless they're earning more than €50,000. The scale of this disparity between low and better-off workers is absolutely stark. It is clear where the government's priorities lie. This budget fails ordinary workers and families, but it particularly fails those on low and fixed incomes, and not only when it comes to its regressive tax cuts. The minimum wage will increase by a paltry 30 cents, barely enough to cover inflation, and will go to €10.50 per hour. We have heard a lot of platitudes from the government about the importance of those frontline workers who worked in sectors like retail and others throughout the pandemic, putting their own lives and health at risk. Yet where is the recognition of that selfless work in this budget? An extra 30 cents in the minimum wage? Is that all this government believes these workers are worth? The living wage was recently increased by 60 cents to 12.90 euro at the end of September. And this minimum, this figure represents the bare minimum required to meet people's physical, social and psychological needs and enable a life with any kind of dignity. That's Roisin Shorthall of uh, the Social Democrats. Uh, Some more of your comments uh, to us. How in the name of God can they say that it was a good budget? Uh, They gave uh, the pensioners a rise of five euro, but the gas bills and the cost of fuel is up. Please explain. It was tough enough for us to live last year with the way prices were, never mind now. And moreover, why have I to be punished when I and people like me that never received the pub payment are being punished now? Uh, Anne in Julianstown says, I got petrol two weeks ago. It was 154 a litre. This week it's 161 a litre. And last night the government put it up at midnight. This does not make sense to the ordinary person. So it went up 7 cents before the budget and now 
again. Uh, thank you indeed, Anne and Julianstown, uh, for your call as well. Uh, another call to us, or another text to us uh, from Patton Balbriggan, who says, uh, does the government think that the pensioners are stupid? They say we're getting €13 Euro a week. For starters, we're only getting €5. Euro. Fuel allowance for the winter, this measly €3 Euro living allowance is for over 80s, and the €5 Euro rise doesn't come into effect until January. What an insult. You get the government you vote for, roll on the next election, says Pat in Balbriggan. Uh, another call to us uh, from Pat and Carrick McCross who says, we're a very small country, so why are we forced by Europe and our government to pay carbon taxes and high fuel costs? This uh, will be remembered as a a frightening budget because of the carbon tax and and the increase in the carbon tax. One would have thought, and a lot of people would have thought, that this carbon tax, which was put in place last year for another seven or eight years, uh, that we pause this year in light of the cause uh, of the cost and the increased cost of fuel uh, coming into the country because um, caused by worldwide uh, prices. But you're adding to the cost by ensuring that people pay this carbon tax and they'll be paying it from uh, uh, midnight tonight or, or, or very shortly anyway. It's going to affect every man and woman and child in this country, and especially the ones that are working. The people that are getting up early in the morning and driving long distances to work, mothers taking children to school, farmers, uh, uh, one farming organization uh, chairman tonight said to me, he said, all we can do, Danny, is, is keep putting the diesel in and keep paying the cost away. And, and, and until we find that we have no, no more money to pay because the weight is going, we'll go as far as we can, uh, but it, it's hard to see that we'll be able to continue in any fair way for, 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 uh, into the future for, for, for much longer. And, and in the sea, transport costs, commercial vehicles, can you imagine the increase uh, adding to their woes by increasing, uh, putting a carbon tax on them, on them again today. Think about the, the, the passenger buses uh, and the cost that's being added to them. And it is a delusion of their, uh, of their income. And it's the same with taxis. Any man that has a wheel or a woman, that any wheel turning at all, they're going to be, they're going to be affected in, 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 in a desperate way. And then, Minister, I ask you, and I ask, uh, and look, it's very clear that the government are, are staying in power uh, with your support, and they're pandering to you uh, every day and every whim, and, 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 and this is terrible that, that this is being meted out to people, because the people in rural Ireland are being eff- uh, affected the most. That's Danny Healy Ray. Uh, and uh, some of uh, the problems he has with carbon taxes in uh, the budget. Mark is in Kells and he's been on to it and he tells us that he's been vaping for the last 12 years. He knows the scourge of nicotine addiction and wanted to point out that putting up the price of cigarettes will not cause smokers to quit. They'll go hungry instead of quitting or before they quit. He says some smokers are spending the equivalent of a mortgage paying each month 
on cigarettes. Uh, raising the price of tobacco might stop young people from starting to smoke, but generally, he says, uh, he feels uh, that the current tobacco prices are only causing poverty. Uh, thanks uh, for that, Mark. Uh, a number of people in touch with us about cigarettes. Uh, somebody asking if Peter Fitzpatrick thinks for a minute that 50 cent on the price of a pack is for anything else but the government coffers the old reliable nothing to do with health smugglers are laughing I think that's the point that Peter Fitzpatrick was making and he was saying that that 50 cent per pack would amount to millions and that it should be ring fenced and put into research uh, and uh, that that would help uh, to uh, help people to get off cigarettes. Somebody else says it's not 15 euro a pack. My cigarettes are going to cost me 15.30 a pack. It's a, an incredible amount of money for a packet of cigarettes. Thank you for your text of the programme. Michelle, thank you as well for calling us. Michelle says, myself and my husband are on low incomes. We both earn less than €30,000 a year. Can't really see much benefit for us in this budget. The prospect of owning a home still is a pipe dream for us and no more than that as we struggle to pay our rent at the moment and pay all of our other bills uh, for that seriously thinking of leaving the country and emigrating, says Michelle. Thanks, uh, Michelle, uh, for your call to the programme. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us so far today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now more on yesterday's budget. Let's speak uh, to Labour's uh, spokesperson on finance, Jed Nash, who's uh, a TD for Loud and East Mead. And uh, a very good morning to you. Thanks uh, for joining us on the programme. As always, uh, you said uh, you weren't just happy with uh, the budget yesterday, but you were concerned because today rents will continue to rise, waiting lists would continue to grow, and carbon emissions will not fall quickly enough, as well as uh, the minimum wage not growing at a rate that would be in line with the living wage. Uh, tell us what you would have done differently or what mistakes were made by the government yesterday. I, I think that the primary mistake, um, Michael, was the fact that they chose with the 1.5 billion euros that they told us they had available to spend on you know, additional um, initiatives but they chose to um, spend one third of that, uh, over 520 million euro on tax cuts that frankly nobody needs uh, and very few people earning over a certain level of income want. Um, they managed to uh, con people into believing that a five or extra a week or eight euro a week extra if you're earning 40,000 euro plus is going to make a significant difference to your quality of life when in fact those resources would have been better put into free GP care for all kids. Uh, it would have been better uh, if, it, if they chose to revolutionise childcare and properly cap prices by introducing a universal uh, public, publicly funded and publicly delivered uh, childcare um, initiative that would really drive down costs and control costs for, for parents and recognise the work that childcare professionals do. Instead, they chose to um, do what... Some governments have done in the past, um, I think they've ended up regretting it, but mm. don't seem to learn the lesson of history, is bribe people with the wrong money. A lot of fibres thrown around yesterday will make very little difference to anyone's quality of life. It's certainly not the kind of social transformation that we would have hoped if they really did learn the lessons from COVID and the fact that COVID has exposed a lot of gaps in our health service and childcare and education that really needs to be filled uh, if we're really going to compare ourselves with the countries in Europe that we like, like to compare ourselves okay, with. Okay, well, you wouldn't be very popular. In Germany. You wouldn't be very popular, obviously, with GPs because they're concerned uh, about making free GP care available to seven-year-olds. Yeah, uh, they are because there's been very little movement on a contract negotiation and 
when you are negotiating board ministers like this, uh, you need to make sure that those who are delivering the service mm. are on board. There have been four or five missed and wasted years here, uh, Michael. Um, it was 2015, in fact, uh, when uh, then Junior Minister for Health, Alex White, introduced 3GP care for kids under six. It's taken five years to move that up by one year. Now, mm. at that rate of progress, it would take this government uh, 54 years to make sure that all kids in Ireland got free uh, I know, but there was a time, and it's not that long ago, that you could ring up the doctor and get an appointment this afternoon. Now you have to wait a, a week, uh, and if uh, you don't have a, a GP, you might find it hard to get in anywhere. Correct. Yeah, because there is a shortage of GPs, and part of this is because of um, negotiations around uh, their, their contract, which should have been expedited over the last But also years. because so many people go to the doctor because it's free to the under-sixes. Well, it's about supply and demand. Um, I, I'm not entirely sure that there's a huge amount of evidence like to show that there has been a huge uptick uh, in uh, under sixes going mm. to uh, the... Now, anecdotally, mm. uh, we hear about this all of the time, and doctors do tell me uh, that they have experienced a, a form of uplift. That being said, uh, we all know that the basic principles of the provision of healthcare in a modern society mm. suggest that you keep people out of hospitals and you stop... Um, small problems are becoming much more complex and more expensive to fix by investing in primary care. And that means more GP, more GPs, okay. more practice mm-hmm. nurses, more resources for GPs more generally to deliver the kind of service that a modern European country should uh, be entitled to expect. I'm very concerned as well, Michael, uh, the fact that um, you know, the core social welfare increases, we spoke about this earlier mm-hmm. on this week, mm-hmm. uh, because, of course, you know, this government are world champion leakers and we have seen so many leaks uh, to do with the budget in the papers over the weekend and early this week. We know that the um, social welfare increases will not uh, in any way go towards making the escalating cost living. Yeah, well, you've got to compare that with the tax cuts that you were talking about because the eight or nine euro uh, that people will enjoy uh, because they'll be paying less tax uh, will really mean little or nothing to them because they'll need it to, to meet the increasing cost of energy. Uh, and that five euro won't cover that increased cost. It certainly won't. Um, I, I listened to interest to Nara Connor from uh, Age Action yesterday. Um, uh, a very eminent public policy person who has said very clearly um, that because since 2019 there hasn't been an increase in the uh, old age pension, for example, and because of rising inflation, and we know the government articulated yesterday 3.7%, that's the uh, basis on which they're operating, mm. uh, you would probably need um, a pension increase of about €10, Euros, probably €9.19. Euro and Matt O'Connor said earlier on on another st- station, sorry, yesterday, but in fact, um, pension spending power um, because of the fact that it hasn't been increased in two years and because of the rising cost of living, uh, spending power for pensioners, someone on the on the normal state pension, has gone down by 10 year old 24. So mm. all of this will be swallowed up and more. So what we need to move towards is this idea of uh, a minimum standard of living, attaching the annual um, pension rate to uh, a minimum essential standard of living, which at the moment is about €252 mm. per person living alone on social welfare, um, rather than this big reveal every year, um, which really worries pensioners and worries people who depend on uh, the state for their income. Okay. Uh, we, ju- we, we just heard from Michelle a few moments ago who's thinking of emigrating herself and her husband around €30,000 a, a, a year uh, a, a, or less, uh, and they're in a cohort uh, that could really uh, be in trouble over the course of the next 12 months. Even minimum wage uh, earners uh, will do well because uh, they'll see an increase of about a, a tenner a week, won't they, which would cover uh, the cost of inflation at least to some degree. But there's little or nothing in this for people uh, who are on below 30,000 a year. But there is no, I mean, if you're on about 25,000 euro, you will benefit to the tune of two euros. So tax increases or tax um, 
uh, adjustments that government made yesterday will, um, by definition, disproportionately benefit um, the better off. And remember, Leo Varankar constantly tells us um, that he wants to move the minimum wage to uh, living wage. He has had five years to do that. We proposed that in 2016. It changed the legislation of the Low Pay Commission, which I established back in 2015. And uh, the truth is that the gap now between the living wage, which is 12.90, it's come up six. 60 cents because of the rising cost of living and um, the gap between that and the minimum wage now is is, is even even larger so for michelle and her partner uh, your reference earlier on life is not going to get any much any better over the next period of time if you're renting nothing for renters there's been a, an extension to the tax mm. break uh, for landlords and i'm intrigued at this new um zoned levy zone uh, zoned land tax that a uh, government wants to introduce vacant site tax was Seven uh, percent collected mm-hmm. by local authorities. Uh, very insubstantial amounts were were found. It was a very imperfect system. They now made into a zoned land tax to try to encourage developers to actually uh, develop the land that they are planning permissions um, on, and that will be set at three percent. But in two or three years, it's the old um, you know Saint Augustine um, analogy: you're making chased, but not yet. Um, I mean, there's nothing in in this for for anybody who is you know on on, on lower middle incomes trying to to buy a house. I mean, how to buy uh, on the face of it looks like an attractive option. You get ten percent back mm. up to thirty thousand. But the truth is, the Department of Finance, the Department of Public Expenditure, the Central Bank, and ESRI has said this is inflationary. All it does is increase the cost of uh, existing homes and nobody benefits. And you made the charge yesterday that that was to the shame of Fianna Fáil as were a lot of uh, the problems in the budget and you were making the point uh, that there was little or nothing between Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil and that Fianna Gael had won all of the arguments in preparing this budget. Was there a sense of deja vu for you in uh, terms of when the Labour Party were in coalition with Fianna Gael? Uh, no, what there wasn't uh, in, in the budget yesterday was any sense of uh, direction. Uh, I call it directionless. It was incoherent. Uh, and we were delivering, when we were delivering budgets, it was in an entirely different scenario. Uh, the country was in a different place entirely. And uh, we know the international environment was very, very different um, as well. Um, the focus in the early budgets that we had, uh, you know, 10, uh, 9, 10, 8, 9, 10 years ago, was actually trying to uh, make the economy recover from uh, the uh, impact of the uh, crash that Fianna Fáil and the Green Party delivered to us. Mm. Uh, we're not comparing apples with apples uh, at all. Uh, and really this uh, budget tells me that Fianna Fáil have a very serious identity crisis. They used to be, they used to say they were for the small man and the small woman, as they would put it, but there's no evidence uh, in this budget where there's simply a fiver for everybody that those in low and middle incomes are going to see much benefit okay. at all. All right, Jed Nash, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Jed Nash is, of course, a, a TD for Loud and East Meath and uh, the Labour Party's spokesperson on finance. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information, 
information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.